0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Noel. He's back. He's actually sitting in for this one. And uh, that makes this stuff you should know. Yeah, we left a trail of breadcrumbs. Or pebbles, depending on what part of the episode. That's right talking about. And that's did, that's my favorite one now. With, that and the juniper tree are my favorite. Hansel favorite and Gretel. Things.
0: Yep. And the juniper tree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we should uh, say this is a two-parter. Um, you should have already previously listened to one. We probably should have put this one out first <laughs> and then done the other one. <laughs> yeah, but hey. But whatever. What-evs. We, we just think this is a nice... Uh, I really enjoyed these two, actually. I think if you can make the case that we did it in the right
1: order because... It, now people have thought about fairy tales and have gelled and bathed in them for like the last day or so. And they're now they're ready to yeah. understand what's been haunting them. But where did they come from? Right. What's the deal? And we're going to tell you what's the deal.
0: Uh This is, I really did enjoy these though. This kind of reignited my, uh kind of brought up a lot of stuff.
1: Oh yeah? Did you find yourself weeping? Not weeping, just kind of like uh, remembering childhood and I don't know, I enjoyed it. I guess I didn't read that many fairy tales. It reminded me that fairy tales are awful. <laughs> no, they're not awful. They're just very um, dark. Yes, but I appreciate that part. I think it's more just the. Have you ever? Have you ever seen a, a picture of a human being without a face? Uh, yeah, sure. I think that's kind of how I think <laughs> I of fairy tales. Okay, they're they're blank. They're anonymous. They're um, flat. I think it's – I've actually run into that term a lot in researching for this episode. Well,
0: there's certainly not a lot of character development and –
1: No, and that's part of like their like charm, that. their allure. But it's also like, you know, that's the memory I formed of them. is like, wow, I'm, I'm used to characters or psychology yeah. is lacking as well. Like totally. the people do stuff for almost no apparent reason whatsoever and a lot of it's horrible stuff. Yeah. Um And that's actually kind of – set the stage for fairy tales to be told and retold and retold and interpreted and analyzed and um I think it, it, that's what makes them so enduring is that they are there's there's they're so minimalist that they just survive because humans will change and update and we'll go from wearing bell bottoms and macrame vests to wearing like silver jumpsuits which are in right now um yeah but ultimately, we're still, like, very similar to what we were, you know, 60,000 years ago. Yeah. And I think fairy tales um, reflect that. Well said. Thanks, man. Um, and also, I can say that because from what I understand, despite the fact that there is serious study of fairy tales, no one really has any definitive say over what they are. Like, try to define what a fairy tale is, Chuck.
0: Um, it's a story usually encompassing like a moral or ethical, uh, lesson. Right. But isn't that a fable? Uh, fantastical elements. Sure. Okay. Uh, that often had dark undertones or overtones. That's actually a pretty
1: great definition, but it does raise some questions. It's like, what is the difference between a fairy tale and a fable or a fairy tale and a nursery rhyme? You know, what's yeah. the... What is it specifically about fairy tales?
0: I think it's all, I think they're all very similar and it's all part of uh, folklore. Yeah. So if you listened, uh, I think in February this year, we did one on folklore. So it ties in heavily with that. For sure. Um, And also we didn't, uh, I don't know why we just defined fairy tale because we never defined what vocal fry was apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we did. Yeah. We got some complaints like you never said what it was, but we we demonstrated it. Over and over.
1: Yeah, and we said it's like a flat, creaky way of speaking.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like we got the point across. Yeah.
1: Um, Okay, so, fairy tales. Yes. Specifically, when you think of fairy tales, you you might think of Disney, but if you give it a little more thought, you're probably going to come up with um, the Brothers Grimm. Yeah. Matt Damon
0: and... um, Heath Ledger. Right. R.I.P. Yeah, for real. Uh, Yeah, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm... Uh, and of course, there, well, let's just go ahead and say there's a couple of types of fairy tales. There's the, oh, yeah, there's the,
1: uh, oral tale,
0: yeah, the oral tale, which is, and and the Grimm brothers are kind of exist between the two worlds, but one is the oral world, which we talked about in folklore, the age old tradition of passing stories down, um, via mouth parts. Right. Over and over and over, changing them, adding some spice, Mm -hmm. just like telling a joke or a ghost story or something like that.
1: Right, exactly. Um, And fairy tales specifically, as far as they went with oral tales, are typically associated with women and typically associated with women um, undertaking domestic chores. Yeah. That that's typically where they were passed down. Um, And so you've got the oral tale. Well,
0: which makes sense, though. When I read this, I was like, why are there so many fairy tales that have... Women at the loom are spinning stuff.
1: Because apparently that's where they were told. <laughs> exactly. You know? It makes sense now. Yeah. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm bored out of my mind here spinning this straw yeah. into gold. Let me eat some peyote and make up a story. <laughs> <Right>. And you <laughs> sit there and listen. Um, there's also the literary fairy tale, which appears to be uh, – there's a handful of people like Charles Perrault or – Charles Perrault. Right. Um, and then uh, there's also Hans Christian Andersen, very famously. Sure. And these people are are reputed as having created, you know, many fairy tales, and those are called literary fairy yeah, tales. Yeah, like
0: they er- were original authors and made these up.
1: Right. That's apparently a total like m- misattribution. Like, for example, Little Red Riding Hood, right? Yeah. Is a great example. That's typically. Attributed to Charles Perrault. Yeah. In the, I think the 17th or 16th century, Not right? Not
0: Charles Perrault.
1: No. <laughs> Charles Perrault. Yeah. His ancestor. Um, and Charles Perrault, he was very famous, he, as famous as Hans Christian Andersen was, um, for, for writing down fairy tales into yeah. collections and just being delightful, right? And sure. he was great. And at the end of every one of his, there was a moral to the story. Yeah. Um, but they, people tend to think they either – if he didn't come up with it, it, it was originated right before then. But we found an article um, that was from uh, – it covered a 2009 study f- carried out by a cultural anthropologist who basically went to some biologists and said, hey, you guys know how you trace um, species and create the the tree of life, the taxonomy of biology? Yeah. Can you do that with – Little Red Riding Hood.
0: And they said, man, you are one crazy lady. You are I one whacked out hep cat. <laughs> Actually, it may have been a man. Dr. Was, Jamie uh, Tarani.
1: It was a man. Yeah. And still is probably. I mean, it's only been six years. You never know. Um, so Dr. Tarani went to some biologists and, and figured out how to apply the same methods to the story, Little Red Riding Hood. And he found that not only was it not just like a few years older than Perrault's version, it was as... as as much as 2,600 years old, basically.
0: Yeah, they found uh, variations in China, in Iran, and the Middle East. Um, they found some. Uh, you know, for Aesop's Fables? Well, another person. They <laughs> they found some of those from 6th century BC. So basically, what they're saying is, maybe nobody made these up. Well, someone at some point did. At least as far as Little Red Riding Hood goes. Yeah that there's some common ancestor
1: that predates 2600 years before the present and um it was it's a very widespread tale. Yep. Um not only did Dr. Uh, Tehrani um trace the lineage back to uh, 600 BCE um he found that you could take these tales all around the world and lump them into groups, just a few a handful of groups. And that um places as disparate as uh, Iran and Nigeria and Europe all were in the same group, whereas like Japan and Burma and uh, China were in their own group. Right. Uh, but they all kind of bear this resemblance where there is a lion or a tiger or a, a wolf who is posing as something else in order to get the drop on someone else.
0: Yeah. And it's uh, sometimes usually a little girl, but I think in Iran it was a little boy. Yeah. So uh, details change again. Simple folklore, I think,
1: but the, the the structure, the skeleton of the story, is yeah. still very much the same, traceable back twenty six hundred years. So that that kind of answers the question that I don't know if we raised or not yet. Uh, who owns or who 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 came up with fairy tales? But humans did. That's the best answer you could possibly come up with. Is humans came up with it, and over the over the t- years, like you said, people embellish it, people add, people subtract, um, and the Grimm brothers did exactly that same thing.
0: Alright, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about these, these Grim Bros. Um, Jacob and Wilhelm. Did I already say that? They were born in you Germany. You said Jakob in part one, which I, oh, I really? appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> Jakob and Wilhelm. Uh-huh. Uh, Jacob, uh, or Jakob was born in 1785. Wilhelm, just a year later. And they were, they were kind of rich kids. Their dad was a lawyer. Yep. And they had some money. Sure. Uh, their original house, if you look at it, it's funny. It looks like, I mean, it's a total Bavarian, like, Gingerbread house. Sweet. And um, they they grew up in Germany, and when they were 10 years old, their dad died of pneumonia. Uh, and all of a sudden, they didn't have the kind of dough that they were used to having. No, they did. Which was not good and, and a little scary. I don't get the sense that they were, like, dirt poor or anything, because they still had some relatives that had some cash.
1: Well, plus also, I mean, they made it all the way through law school in honor of their father. So, I mean, that wasn't free even back then.
0: Yeah, I think their aunt paid for school uh, they graduated, each graduated at the top of their class and I guess what would be considered high school. Mm-hmm. And then their auntie paid for law school. And it wasn't long after law school that they got into the, um, I was about to say writing they did write, but they were the editors for sure, the collecting and editing and yeah. writing business.
1: They were what's called file. Philologists curating is the word I meant. Right. Yeah. Um, and they were also they're, they considered themselves and were considered linguists as well. And by the way, they were Hessians, which means that they were um, from the same place as the headless horseman from the Sleepy Hollow legend. Really, he, he was a Hessian mercenary. I don't remember that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, they uh, they they came. They graduated from law school during this period called uh, German Romanticism, um, which was basically. This idea that before, years before, in the in the mists of history, the Germanic people were very interesting. They had a um, very good grasp on things. And a lot of this was passed down through oral folk, folklore. Sure. And um, that this stuff was disappearing thanks to industrialization. So you get the idea that there's a little bit of nervousness, at least among the intellectual um, people of, of Germany at the time, that... This cultural history was drying up very quickly. Yeah. And there was a movement to collect this oral knowledge before it disappeared. And that's what, um, that's what the uh, Grimm brothers were doing when they set about collecting these stories. Although they weren't very, um, honest about it, at least at first.
0: Yeah, it was, um, we know them now as, as just simply the Grimm brothers fairy tales. Yeah. But the original collection was called, um, nursery and household tales or, Uh, Die Kinder und Hausmärchen in German. Man, your German is... (laughs) (laughs) It's coming back. Uh, And there were 86 stories originally in the collection. And by the way, big shout to the article from the New Yorker, Once Upon a Time. Yeah. A Lore of the Fairy Tale by Joan... uh... (laughs) Acosella? Yes, very nice. I think that's it. Yeah, she wrote a
1: great article. Um, and that's the, largely the basis of our podcast by the way.
0: That's right. so thanks for that. but um, 86 original stories and like you said, originally they um, in the in the forward in the introduction they were like this is a this is all German all the time. Basically word for word, we went around to
1: the peasantry and collected this um, these mar was it marching or marking
0: uh, for what the uh,
1: tales. The uh, German for tales. Is it Marchen or Marken?
0: Hausmärchen. Märchen. So, That's the umlaut at work. So the they
1: went around to the Volk, the peasantry, and collected the Märchen from them.
0: Yeah. It um, didn't change a word. Specifically, they said they had a primary source, uh, a woman named uh, Dorothea uh, Viman, and she was a peasant in a village near them. Um, but it turns out that all of this, again, was folklore, which... I can't fault them too much because that was their business. No, but they, they did. trumped it up to be a little more folksy than it was. Well, they
1: bald-facedly lied in yeah. their in, in the introduction in their first um, the first edition, which was published in two volumes in eighteen twelve and eighteen fifteen, right? And so, this uh, nursery and household tales became known as Grimm's fairy tales. And at first, it was definitely um, a, a much more of an intellectual pursuit. There are lots of footnotes. Yeah, they tried to make it seem like they were just collecting and preserving this German folk knowledge and all that. But it turns out that they... They did have that primary source in that woman, but she was pretty far from a peasant. Apparently she was the wife of a tailor, which was part of the merchant class, not the peasant class.
0: Yeah, and she was just one source. They relied on friends and family and relatives and other
1: collections of, uh, fairy folk, folk tales and fairy tales yeah. that they just lifted.
0: Um, and, and we're not suggesting there were thieves. This was a common thing to do. It was, but again, they
1: bald-facedly lied in their <laughs> in the, in the introduction and, pre- and preface, which is funny, but it's, um, yeah, they were, they, they were, they were trying to adopt an aura for their project that they wanted it to have. Sure. That it didn't necessarily have.
0: Well, yeah, and I don't think we mentioned their one source uh, wasn't even of uh, German descent. She was a French Huguenot. Yeah, so they even kind of trumped that up.
1: Right, which means that a lot of the stuff, that, like Red Riding Cap, um, yeah. is a ripoff of Charles Perrault's Little Red Riding Hood, yes, or an adaptation, whatever you want to call it. But again, this is in the midst of this German romanticism where German culture was trying to be promoted and um, uh, celebrated and preserved. Um, So all of this stuff was very much painted as German, even though not necessarily any of it was German in origin. But it was far more ancient than even the French that they were lifting it from.
0: That's right. Um, All right, here, let's take a little break. And let's come back and let's talk a, a little bit more about these uh, Grimm brothers. Okay.
1: And we're back, and Chuck. Before we get back to it, I want to shout out to guest producer Noel, yeah, who is responsible for the fairy tale themed jingle that this episode and the first one too.
0: Yeah, we asked, and he was like, "Too easy. I'll do it with my eyes closed." Yeah,
1: while I'm asleep. And with, he did with an alligator chasing me. <laughs> That's right.
0: So thanks, Noel. It's Awesome. All right, these Grimm brothers. Uh, they were they were tight. They were re- really close with each other. <laughs> they were. They worked really close with each other. They were buddies, from what I can tell. Uh, and apparently for most of their career they worked, uh, at desks facing each other, that classic writing partner. Thing like, like uh, we are now. Yes. Even though it's one desk. Right. And we only sit here to record.
1: Yeah, I guess there is some similarity here, or there, yeah. sure. We're, <laughs> we're making magic and they were too. I think that's the similarity, right?
0: Uh, sure. Right. Uh, Jakob was, uh, was a difficult introvert and Wilhelm was pretty laid back. Uh, Wilhelm would eventually get married because he was more outgoing and had four kids, mm-hmm. whereas Jakob stayed a bachelor his whole life. Right. Um, and they were tight. They worked as librarians together for a lot of their career. Uh, and like you said, they were uh, philologists. And it's
1: a tough word to say.
0: It is. Um, like they worked on most things, I think eight things together. Jakob wrote 21 books on his own, Wilhelm 14. And they mm-hmm. were, I mean, one of them wrote a book on grammar. One of them wrote like a history book. They were smart dudes. They were smart dudes. Um, but their, their life's work, aside from the fairy tales, ended up being, they, they seemed to be sort of obsessed with making a, a German dictionary. Right. Complete, like writing a dictionary.
1: Yeah, they made it to F.
0: I believe. Before they died.
1: Yeah, and then some, some <laughs> other people came along and said, we're going to carry on this work and finish it. And it was completed, but it was a massive project.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, like, for decades, they worked up just to get through F.
1: Right. And I think, um, who died first? I believe uh, Wilhelm, the younger one, died first, and Jakob carried the dictionary on for four more years, even after his death. Yeah. But... um Jakob said, "Okay, I'm done with the fairy tales. I'm going to move on to other stuff." And Wilhelm actually edited that thing for 45 years. Wow! It went through seven editions. Of oh,
0: the of oh, the fairy tale thing, yeah. Yes,
1: the nursery and household tales, the Grimm fairy tales. Yeah, book. I thought you were on the dictionary. Sorry. It went. I'm sorry, I switched. Um, it went from uh, it went from I guess 1812 to yeah 1857 uh, was yeah. when he released the last edition. And they were very different books by the time the first edition and the last edition came out. And even between the first and second editions, they were tremendously different books because um, the Grimm brothers decided that their book wasn't selling like they thought it would, e.g., Hot Cakes.
0: Yeah, if you listen to the previous episode, it was originally much darker and aimed at adults and was poorly reviewed and didn't sell well.
1: Right. And for grammarians listening, by E.G., I'm an example, not that is. I would have said <laughs> I.E. had I meant that. But um, they they decided that if they could just kind of alter their book just a tiny bit, it would sell a lot better. So they went through and took out all the sex, basically.
0: Yeah. And tradition of modern Americans, take out the sex, pump up the violence.
1: Right. But these are like <laughs> early 19th century Germans doing this. Yeah. And... I, I guess it's the, that same thing. Um, and here, Chuck, I have a question. Yes. And it's a rhetorical question. But so, you know how nursery rhymes are just, or fairy tales are just weird? They're very weird. Sure. There's a lot of random things that just seem really out
0: of context. Like talking eggs that break and.
1: Right. But also like really horrific violence for a children's story and all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that. This is the point where that weirdness sets in because they went through and they took these same tales and they altered them just slightly for children. Yeah. But it went from these are adults or these are stories for adults meant to be told from one adult to another, not for kids. Yeah. To let's adapt these for kids. And, um, in that adaptation, that weirdness set in that's still there today. Yeah. I think that's when it happened.
0: That wasn't even a rhetorical question. That was just a a statement. Thank you. You're putting it out there. Had I ended in upspeak, though, I could have made the case
1: (laughs) that it was rhetorical.
0: Uh, So in in the very next edition out of the seven, they went ahead and uh, after the bad sales and stuff, and like I said, they sanitized it and geared it to kids, but they also dropped – that stuff from the intro, all the lies in the intro. <laughs> and I'm like, I guess you're like, why, why did we even do that? Yeah. You know? They're like, we're sorry, everybody. That was just dumb on our parts. It was Wilhelm. And
1: Jakob's like, or Wilhelm's like, no, it's Jakob. <laughs> and it just goes back and forth for like eight pages.
0: Uh, so in the previous podcast, we mentioned Rapunzel, how that was, um, how Rapunzel, basically, the the lady in question got pregnant after having sex. Rapunzel. Yeah, so they would they would, uh, they would whitewash that kind of stuff. They would sanitize the sexier parts. Right. They just took out the
1: fact that she got pregnant and didn't mention what the prince and she were doing. Right. They just left it up to the parents to imagine and the kids to just be dummies and not know what they were talking about.
0: Right. But like we said, too, the violence stayed, um, and in some cases even got worse. Uh, like when um, Hansel and well. The violence got worse, but they also did sanitize it a little bit just to make it a little more palatable. Like in Hansel and Gretel, Mm-mm. uh, in the previous show, we mentioned that, um, it was, it was a stepmother, an evil stepmother, which mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about later as a recurring motif, um, that took the children out in the woods to abandon them. In the original version, it was both a real mother and a real father. And they were like, all right, you know what? That's really bad. So let's at least make it an evil stepmother that the dad, tries to battle and say no don't do this
1: right but eventually gives into
0: gives into and the kids are still taken out in the woods to die right but it's just a little bit more like okay well it's not the real parents because that's just horrific
1: so the violence is still there but they've taken away a little bit of the psychological terror by replacing the mother slightly with a stepmother right um, and yeah I, I think that that's a I guess that is something of a cleansing. Process as far as editing goes, but the violence is still in there, and it seems very weird, especially today when you look back at this and think like they were reading this to kids. But there is a very smart woman named uh, A.S. Byatt, who's a children's author herself, but also an expert on children's books. Yeah, and she wrote the introduction to a, um, a collection. I think actually the uh, an edition of the Grimm's Fairy Tales by uh, Maria Tatar, who's a basically the foremost expert on fairy tales working today.
0: Yeah, that's, is Zypes not around anymore? He's retired. Because that guy. He's still available
1: for comment for sure, (laughs) but Tatar seems to be the, the, she's taken up the mantle from him. Yeah. And uh, in this edition, A.S. Byatt writes in the introduction of it that, yes, this violence seems weird, but if you step back and think of it as uh, 17th and 18th century Tom and Jerry cartoons, it becomes way more understandable and at the same time way more acceptable as well. Like, think about all the horrible things that Jerry did to Tom. Yeah. And it, what you're looking at is the same exact stuff Yeah, uh, in a fairy tale. So it's, it's not quite as odd as you would think.
0: Yeah, and as far as uh, the historical motif or the, uh, the motif of the evil stepmom, there's a historical realism there that um, someone else pointed out mm-hmm. that uh, at the time, you know, Women died in childbirth a lot. Right. And so uh, oftentimes there was a widow or a widower left with kids that they would bring in a stepmother and resources could be scarce. So you'll see this recurring motif over and over this evil stepmother who basically is competing for both the affections and food. Mm -hmm. Of their little children that they inherited that they don't like. Right, exactly. So that's why you see it pop up over and over and over is because that's kind of what happens sometimes.
1: Yeah, and that's the socio-historical interpretation of fairy tales, which is, um, basically takes fairy tales largely on their face. I mean, like, if you have a talking egg or something like that, you're not going to be like, well, obviously in the 12th century, eggs talked. But there were a lot of, there's a lot of context and background that, um, that I think people, imbue with a lot more fancifulness than need be. For example, like the the presence of wicked stepmothers throughout, or in the case of Hansel and Gretel, um, a child abandonment. Like if you look back at the 14th century during famines and plagues, I think it was the Black Death in particular that just leveled Europe. A lot of people abandoned their children because they? they just couldn't feed them any longer. So this wasn't like... So outlandish that it only belongs in fairy tale. Land, yeah, it might have been like a fairly approachable theme, right? That people talked about to kind of hash out the the feelings of collective societal guilt. Yeah, at, at the fact that child abandonment was rampant.
0: You know, absolutely.
1: It's. I think the socio-historical interpretation is probably my favorite.
0: Can we talk about the juniper tree real quick? I love this one. <laughs> so, like we said. In fairy tales, there's there's incest, there's cannibalism, Mm -hmm. there's murder, there's torture, there's buried alive. There are all kinds of things that can happen. And the juniper tree, maybe, well, I don't know, maybe the worst one of them all. So in this case, we have an evil stepmother, of course, who hates her stepchild, who's a boy. So she comes home and says, hey, you want an apple? And the boy says, (laughs) sure, let me lean in there and get one. And she, uh, it's a trunk, and she slams the trunk down and cuts his head off. <laughs> yeah. And that's just the beginning. So she's like, all right, probably mm-hmm. not a wise move. Let me put the kid in a chair. Let me stick this head back on his neck and wrap a scarf around it and just, uh, here, open his eyes here and put a little smile on his face. And uh, then the, her real daughter comes in, not a stepdaughter. Right. Her favorite real daughter. Yes. And is like... He looks all weird. Why is he just sitting there like an adult? She says, I don't know. Go slap him and, and bring him around a bit. Boxes the ear, I think, is what she told him. <laughs> she really? Ear. Yeah.
1: So she boxes his ear. His head falls off. And by the way, the little girl, which makes it even more horrific what you're about to say, loved the little boy. Oh, even yeah. though it was a stepbrother. Even though in the mom's eyes they were rivals for these scarce resources. Yeah. Little girl loves the little boy. So go ahead.
0: So she knocks his head off and the mom's like, you knocked your brother's head off. Um, but you know what? we're going to just keep this quiet between us and Mm -hmm. you won't get in any trouble. Let's just cook them into a stew and feed them to your father. Yes. Or stepfather Stepfather. in this case.
1: And the little girl's like beside herself with like guilt and shame and and horror at the fact that she, or the thought that she killed her beloved stepbrother. Yeah. Uh, But she goes along with it because this is what her mom's saying. And the father comes home and he eats the stew and actually it's black pudding. Yeah. not sure what that is, but, um, the, uh, the father eats it and he's like, this is all for me. Yeah, you guys then, then have he had any. a little
0: misogyny and greed on the end. Yeah. Cause he's like, no one else in this family is gonna eat this. Yeah. But me.
1: It's pretty nuts. And in the end, the little, the, the little girl takes the boy's bones and buries him by the juniper tree and he's reborn as a bird and ends up killing the wicked stepmother. Um, and then comes back to life as the boy. So it all works out in the end for the boy, but it's pretty nuts as far as like these stories go. Like, that has it all. Do
0: you want to talk about how children played butcher with each other? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This one's very short. And we should point out, many of these are very short. Like, Little Red Riding Hood was only four pages long. Think Rapunzel was only two or three.
1: But that also, in and of itself, was the work of the Grimm brothers. They would embellish this stuff tremendously and, oh, and yeah, like, often double it in sure. size.
0: Double it from a few paragraphs to a couple of pages. So. Right. So it's still short.
1: And by the way, if you want to read a really neat analysis of the juniper tree, uh, read Ernest Parkin's analysis on word, words and edgeways. Yeah? Yeah, it's pretty cool. He finds a lot of neat symbolism in it.
0: All right, here's how children played butcher with each other. (laughs) It's a great title. Uh, A man once slaughtered a pig while his children were looking on. When they started playing in the afternoon, one child said to the other, You be the little pig, and I'll be the butcher. Whereupon he took an open blade and thrust it into his brother's neck. Uh, Their mother, who was upstairs in a room bathing the youngest child in a tub, heard the cries of her other child, quickly ran downstairs, and when she saw what had happened, drew the knife out of the child's neck, and in a rage, thrust it into the heart of the child who had been the butcher. Then she rushed back to the house to see what her other child was doing in the tub, but in the meantime, it had drowned in the bath. Wow. The woman was so horrified that she fell into a state of utter despair, refused to be consoled by the servants, and hanged herself. When her husband returned home from the fields and saw this, he was so distraught that he died shortly thereafter. The end. That's
1: like the episode of Dragnet, where (laughs) they have a pot party, and the parents forget their child is in the bath, and it drowns. Was that on
0: Dragnet? Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So, I, you know, of course I'm laughing because, I mean, you can't take that seriously, right? If you watch Dragnet, you can. Well, no, I mean, the, that story, it's just no, so know. over the top and weird and sure. violent and dark.
1: Right. And stuff just happens. Like, again, there's almost no psychology to these things. People just do stuff.
0: Well, supposedly, uh, I think Wilhelm Grimm said specifically about that one, like, no, the clear lesson here is, it's like, don't play with knives and things which is
1: and that's a good point and I don't know if we've even said that like the the predominant theory for why these things even exist is um, a, as far as being taught to children goes they are lessons they're tales on how to grow up how to avoid strangers sure uh, stay away from knives stay away from I guess witches like don't eat houses made of gingerbread just good life lessons that kind of stuff
0: yeah there's sexual predators out there
1: yeah which we'll talk about but let's take another break. You ready for it? Yes. Okay. So, Chuck, you um, you said that there are sexual predators out there, and that. Sure. Little Red Riding Hood in particular like if you read it especially if you read the Grimm version and not the Charles Perrault version yeah it's um like everything comes out great in the end she's saved yeah um you can read between the lines a little bit and that's the key though like these these fairy tales even after they became sanitized through seven editions even after they became disneyfied um, there's still this underlying thread, the theme, the central theme, the message. Look out for sexual predators. Don't cut uh, your brother's head off with the knife. Like They, they can't be expunged, and the stories still remain the same. It's it's so woven into the fabric of them, and I think that's one of the things that makes them interesting. But alternately, something else I ran across, and I think that A.S. um article was... The idea that they don't have any designs on you. Right. They're not trying to teach you a lesson necessarily in and of themselves. They just are what they are. Right. Maybe the person telling you that fairy tale wants you to learn that lesson. The fairy tale in and of itself couldn't care less whether you you learn that lesson or not. It's just, here's a snapshot of what happened in 1217 to this little boy who played with knives with his brother. Learn it or don't, we don't care.
0: Yeah, but this uh, who, what was Zype's first name? Jack. Jack Zype's. He was, uh, may still be, you said he's retired now?
1: Yeah, he's, he worked at the University of Minnesota as a comparative literature professor. Yeah. And German professor.
0: Go Golden Gophers. Yeah. Uh, and he, for many, many years, was the preeminent fairy tale dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was where you would go. He turns up all over the place in his research. But he said, though, um, that there usually is, like, it, a comeuppance, like uh, he says, whoever is a tyrant, a witch, an evil brother or mother who wants her own daughter dead, they will always be punished. There will always be justice. Yeah. And usually that uh, characters that are of humble origins go on to have like great success, like the, you know, the, the uh, m- poor maiden marries the prince in the end, in right. most cases.
1: It's true. But not always. Or the king who wants to have an incestuous relationship with his daughter ends up, Getting killed or something like that.
0: Yeah, in that case, uh, I believe what was his wife was dying, and he said, I will only remarry if I can find someone as beautiful as you. Mm-hmm. And turns out that's my daughter. Right. <laughs> what was that one called? Like Furs of Many or something I think like that? it was that? called The Creep King. Yeah, but that's a,
1: a recurring theme, yeah. actually. It's a very ancient one. It falls under the Cinderella story, um, which apparently, so there's a, I don't know if we mentioned it or not, but there's a uh, folklore cataloging device, like cataloging convention. And I think Cinderella Stories, which is the persecuted heroine, is uh, number 510A. (laughs) Really? Yeah, for real. It's the Arne Thompson Uther classification. 510A, persecuted heroine, Cinderella Stories. The Uther Pendragon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's another, Cinderella is another one. Like, there was one woman in particular who collected 385 different versions of the Cinderella story from around the world. And I think they've identified as many as 15. So Cinderella is another very, very ancient one as well. Yeah. And the one that you recounted about the king who wants to marry his daughter, that particular one's from Greece.
0: Yeah. I think that was called All Kinds of Fur, right. which is a weird title. But it's too. all
1: hyphenated like that's her name or something, I think. <laughs> well, it's very creepy. Um, so, we were talking about like sanitizing it and um, uh, Joan Acosella comes to the Grimm's defense like saying you can't really fault these guys for, for changing this stuff because, again, it doesn't really belong to anybody. They belong to the ages and the Grimm's just put their stamp on it. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, uh, if you if you just take an oral tradition and faithfully write it down, it's going to be virtually unreadable. Yeah. So they they definitely stylized it. They added some more prose, and they made it a lot more memorable. And it became a beloved book. It's a UNESCO book, um, yeah. Memory of the World, I think, yeah. collection. So like it's a it's a very well beloved book. But some people say, you know, if why should the Grimms be the only ones to be able to to change fairy tales? Why do, why does it have to end with them? Right. Maybe it's time to rewrite them some.
0: Well, isn't that what uh, Tartar? Zipes. Zipes, that's his position. No, 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 but I thought the woman who, uh, Tatar, was that her name? Yeah. What, isn't that what she's done? Didn't she release a new version in 2005? She released an annotated version, but she didn't rewrite them.
1: Well, what Zipes is saying is like, uh, here, okay. here's the basic story, go rewrite it as your own. Yes. Um, there have been some feminist collections that that are rewritten stories.
0: Yeah, like why is every girl defenseless and yeah. needs a man to rescue her from poverty or... Danger.
1: Right. And that's a feminist interpretation of a lot of the, um, the fairy tales. Some people say, uh, if you look a little further, like, yes, all the ones that Disney picked and all the most popular ones yeah. are very much patriarch, patriarchically slanted. Right. To where it is a damsel in distress. There's a prince that has to come help her and she's helpless until he comes along and then whatever. Um, but if you look a little further, there are some very, there are other ones where there are resourceful heroines. And yeah. think of Hansel and Gretel. Uh, Gretel tricks the witch oh, yeah. and kills her all by herself without the help of Hansel, who's being fattened up by himself, right?
0: Yeah, and I'm sure Disney, Walt Disney himself, was just like, "Man, they love this stuff." Like, of course, I'm going to. They're, they're eating it up.
1: Yeah, but they're But there. You can also look at Hollywood too as a, a means of taking these classic fairy tales and, and rewriting the grim versions. Like, um there's a huge. I don't want to call it a movement, but there's there's like a trend, I guess. Trend. To to taking these things that were Disneyfied versions of the the stories and yeah. restoring them back even even to their pre-Grim darker roots, just making them dark again. Their grimmer roots. Their grimmer pre-Grim roots. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you ever seen Freeway? with Reese Witherspoon?
0: Oh uh, yeah, that was Little Red Riding Hood. Little right? Red Riding Hood. Yeah, it's pretty if good. If you're movie. a
1: feminist, I guarantee you appreciate that version of Little Red Riding Hood cuz she takes no guff. No guff. And comes out on top. And mm-hmm. at no Isn't point is she uh, sure one? Yeah. Yeah. And Brooke Shields is his wife and she like it's crazy. It's a neat neat movie. But that's a good example of yeah. a rewriting of a classic fairy tale. Like no, it doesn't have to end with the Grimms.
0: Totally. Uh in the Company of Wolves wasn't that a That was a rewrite of uh, or a redo
1: of Little Red Riding Hood, too.
0: A little more of a horror, though, right? I think so. I didn't see it. I didn't
1: either. I think that was Neil Jordan, right? Crying Game, Neil uh, Jordan? Oh, yeah,
0: like one of his early movies. Yeah. So um we have to talk a little bit about uh, the Nazis here, because uh, the Nazis were big on co-opting things for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things they co-opted were Grimm's fairy tales. And since World War II, there's been a big, I don't know about big again, Maybe it was just a trend. (laughs) But there were folks who said that, you know, when you look at these, they're talking about German nationalism and and discipline and violence And and, and order and obedience. And I think the Grimm brothers were like, yeah, it's totally nationalism. We were all about Germany. but. But we died, like, decades before Hitler was even born. Yeah, like, I don't think they would have appreciated that it was co-opted by the Nazis and Hitler saying, like, put these in schools. This is awesome. Right. Like, read this stuff.
1: Put them in Boy Scout rooms everywhere. (laughs) That's funny. So um, the the Allies came in and occupied Germany, and one of the things they said was, like, you guys can't teach this Grimm book anymore and banned it in yeah. a lot of towns around Germany.
0: It became very political. Because
1: it was very much associated with the Third Reich, and one of the reasons why is because the Third Reich said, go teach this to young German kids to make sure that they know they're German and that they will triumph over the Allied wolf, because they're all little Red Riding Hood. That's right. Little Nazi kids. That's right. So um, – Again, people make the case like you can't really hang that on the Grimm brothers. They didn't foresee Nazism and this this German nationalism in and of itself isn't necessarily inherently evil. And if you put it in the context of German romanticism, most countries in Europe were undergoing nationalist fever yeah you know,
0: so um there was some anti-Semitism though in some of the tales, yeah, and that can't be gotten around either, yeah, one uh, was called the Jew and the Brambles, uh, where the protagonist torments uh a Jewish person by dancing making him dance on a thicket of thorns, uh calls him a dirty dog, and then there's I mean, there's various, I think it said three. Basically of the two hundred tales right. had Jewish characters and they were never like favorable.
1: Yeah, the other two um reference the Jewish stereotype of being stingy with money or something like that.
0: Yeah, the good bargain.
1: And a lot of people are like, well, let's just expunge those too. Um and some people have from their collections. I I think that's the other thing too, is you can if the the Grimms kind of set a precedent for you can take these tales yeah. and and Cleanse them if you want, or sure. do whatever you want to them. Like they're
0: they belong to the ages. Well, and that's then comes in the the people who posit whether or not it's, that's good for us. Should we sanitize it? Should we not? Mm-hmm. Uh, w. H. Alden, I love this. <laughs> he uh, described the people who sanitize them as the Society for the Scientific Diet, the Association of Positive Parents, uh, Positivist Parents, the League for the Promotion of Worthwhile Leisure. Uh, or the cooperative camp of prudent progressives. Man. <laughs> that is
1: so W.H. Auden.
0: Oh, yeah. He couldn't just leave it at one description. No way. Uh, so he clearly wasn't in favor of it. Uh, some people think, uh, it's good for us. Um, a man named, uh, Bruno, uh, Bettelheim in a Great 19- name. Bruno Bettelheim? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it totally is. Sounds like a Bond villain or something. Yeah. Uh, in 1976, he had a book called The Uses of Enchantment, and he was very Freudian in nature. Uh, oh, yeah. He basically says that we all, all these kids have these unconscious desires, and these books help, uh, what, like, these repressed desires come out, help them deal with them? Yeah, we, it
1: helps uh, children, yeah, deal with their repressed desires. Like the example of the, um, so we talked about the socio-historical interpretation of the presence of wicked stepmothers, right? Right. There were lots of stepmothers, and they were competing for resources. Bettelheim and the Freudians say, well, no, the stepmothers are there because... Um, Children love their mother, but they also hate their mother. Right. And this gives them a way to work through that <laughs> complex, yeah, that complex um, combination of emotions where they can hate the wicked stepmother, but they can also love the biological mother who's absent or appears early on and then dies, but who is always very loving and kind. Right. So they can work that out. That's a great example of it.
0: Yeah. And then you have Zipes who uh, Jack Zipes says, you know, what it really is, is. Uh, children see the fairy tale as like a counter world, a reflection of their own world. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to, you know, consider what's going on in that world and then take steps in their own world to reform it and not do those things.
1: Right. And specifically, it teaches children to identify... Tyrants and people who are pa- uh, power mad and people who hoard money or harm other people because those people almost invariably come to a terrible end in those things, in, in fairy tales, right? Yeah. So you've got all these different interpretations. Freudian, Carl Jung got into it. Um, the sociohistorical, feminist interpretation. Jack Zyp's own personal leftist interpretation, right? Yeah. Um, and all of them, although they compete here or there, None of them are wrong and none of them are right. And that, again, is the beauty of fairy tales. It's like a blank, white piece of plywood that we project our own thoughts and fears and hopes and and ideas onto, culture by culture, age by age.
0: Yeah, and Tatar, uh, in her collection, did a pretty smart thing, I think. She actually collected some of the more uh, disturbing ones in the back of the book Mm -hmm. under the title Tales for Adults. Basically, read these first on your own. Right. See if you want to read them to your kid. Yeah. Don't front load it with uh, the juniper tree. <laughs> right. You know?
1: And actually, Joan Acasella says that you should take an exacto knife and just cut the juniper tree out of your Oh, is that who said that? Yeah. I thought
0: that was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, I don't know. If your kid's got a strong fortitude. It's up to the parents, but it yeah. wasn't always <laughs> up to
1: the parents. There was a big movement in the uh, mid-20th century for um, realism among children's books. Yeah. And and the Grimms were first on the chopping block there. A- instead, it was replaced by, like, Judy goes to the firehouse, as Akasella says. Right. I to- Like, think about it. It's like a total 50s children's book. Yeah. Like, see Dick and Jane run. Yeah. You know? Um. And it was, I guess, Maurice Sendak with Where the Wild Things Are who, who said, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. He brought
0: the cool back to children's books. He definitely did. Yeah. I haven't read many children's books lately, but I think there's a lot of... uh... You read Daddy Sat on a Duck, right? Yeah, I did read that one. Lots of fart jokes in that one. Yeah, that was uh, written by one of our listeners, even. Mm -hmm. Um, Highly recommended. It is. It's very good. But I think these days there's a mix of things going on. Realism, Mm -hmm. fanciful stuff, stories. I know, uh, well, this is more of a young adult novel, but Colin Malloy of the December is sort of Mm three-part children's uh, novels. Like big, big books. Oh, yeah. About this uh, fantastical world in Oregon, this forest in Oregon where uh, I can't, I've, I've bought them all. I can't wait to read them.
1: Yeah. It's cool, man.
0: Yeah, I think he's, hes that's more the tradition of the, uh, like, Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. Right, that's what I thought of yeah. when
1: you said that. I wanted to say Avalon, it's not the name. Narnia. Narnia. Um, yeah. I have no idea where children's books are these days either. I wonder, though, what, what it reflects about society at large whatever phase children's books are, whether it's realism or fancifulness, you know? Yeah. Like, does, are we... Like, when you're in an economic downturn, is realism or fantasy the one that steps in? Yeah. I would guess fantasy, because people want escapism then.
0: I was way into that stuff. I wasn't into, like, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, but I love Maurice Sendak. Really? And I, Dr. I Seuss that. and yeah. stuff that was really kind of out there.
1: I love Dr. Seuss. I found out that it's... um. Not every boy read Ramona Quimby books. Uh, I thought it yeah. was unisex. Apparently not.
0: Yeah, I read uh, some Judy Bloom. Yeah, of course. Um, and I did read the first couple of uh, the the chronic What Calls of Narnia. <laughs> did you ever see that skit? No. It was one of the Saturday Night Live shorts. They were doing uh, Chris Parnell and Sandberg were doing a rap. The chronic what calls of Narnia? <laughs> no, I didn't see that. It's like a very weird, misplaced what. Did you see Mister Show's coming back on Netflix? Yeah, well, as close as we're going to get to Mister Show, I don't think they can call it Mister Show.
1: No, they're calling it uh, with like W slash. Bob and David. Bob and David. I can't wait, man. It's I saw a me.
0: couple of clips, and it looks like yeah. It looks like it's going to be as good as it ever was. I'm pretty psyched. Me too.
1: Uh, before we leave you, since we're talking about fairy tales, we thought it'd be appropriate to mention that two of our horror fiction contest submitters uh, are published. One's published again. Jay McMurray published The Dreamings of Leonard J.M. Leaper. And you can check that out at TatePublishing.com. Not Leeper? No, Leeper. Oh, okay. And then also you can find Patrick Scott. He wrote Play, I believe which was in Meat for Tea magazine. And you can find uh, information about that at uh, meat4tea.com. Uh, since I said meat for tea it's time for Listener Mint.
0: Wow, I wish it was time for us to meet for tea.
1: No, M-E-A-T. Yeah.
0: Okay. Kidding. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, a little bit more on vocal fry. We got a lot of response from this one.
1: I think it's second in controversy only to homelessness.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of ladies wrote in, uh, women that were very appreciative. A lot of men wrote in. Um, who were not appreciative. Many were, too. Yeah, many were, but a lot of dudes wrote in. I think they're part of the, the men's movement, you know?
1: It was divided like you would expect, but there were men who wrote in to support us. There were women who, who wrote in to, to criticize Vocal Fry that agreed with Naomi Wolf.
0: Yeah, and I, I just want to clear up. I don't mean all old white men are awful. It, it, I don't. It, I,
1: I. You don't even need to say that. If
0: you're not one of the the ones that are doing these things, then great. Who cares? Yeah, I know. You don't need to defend the ones who are. Nope. All right. Here we go. Uh, hey guys, just want to say thanks so much for your recently uh, for recently tackling some very charged gender issues in the most mature. But non-apologist of ways.
1: I like how this email is going
0: so far. <laughs> uh, whether it be female puberty, vocal fry, or your excellent double duo with the, uh, stuff you miss in history class crew and listener mail, you nailed what I consider to be the best way to handle the ubiquitous double standards that women find themselves held to uh, state that it is unequivocally wrong. Then calmly and rationally pick apart. Why? Uh, you are not trying to start a gender war though. I'm sure there are those out there who will take it as such, uh, See beginning of this email, Mm -hmm. Um, but you meticulously undercut the meticulously undercut the arguments and unconscious justifications that allow these attitudes to endure underneath all the truths by uh, consensus and familial and cultural norms. Very little remains to give weight to these perspectives. And I believe that both genders are, uh, albeit slowly, shedding them thanks to the efforts of you and many others on this path. Very well said, right? Uh, This is the road to equality, dudes. I threw that in there. And I cannot say how much I appreciate your proper championing of it. We are all persons, no matter our gender, and should be respected as such, free as much as possible of worthless generalizations. Uh, also, as a side note, I was once upon a time a linguist and very much agree with your handling of sociolinguistics. A linguist's... Sorry, Chuck. Is that because I said like...
1: Linguisticist? Linguistinator or I something think, weird? Yeah. Uh, a linguistinator. Right? A,
0: ling- a linguist's most fundamental tenet is that no use of language to communicate is wrong, and thus linguistic evolution should be no more surprising than that of pop music or fashion.
1: Yeah, the prescriptivists are just screaming (laughs) at their iPods right now.
0: Ideas and perspectives change, and language by its nature will rise to meet it. Cheers, that is from David, a long-time Stuff You Should Know fan.
1: Thanks a lot, David. That was a very kind email. Very well said. Um, Representative, uh, I would say about half of the emails that we got about Vocal Fry. The other half... (laughs) <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more
0: on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.